0: Welcome to the monthly BV Magazine podcast, your genuine slice of rural Dorset life. This is episode 3, November 2022. Hello from me, Terry Bennett.
1: And hello from me, Jenny Devitt. In this episode of the BV Magazine podcast... In our wildlife section, there's positive news from Dorset Wildlife Trust's Wild Woodbury project. News of hares in Dorset, both in the wild and in churches... North Dorset CPRE's chairman, Rupert Hardy, reveals the importance of hedgerows. Andrew Livingston reports on a hefty fine recently handed down to a Dorset
0: farmer and questions how his coveted red tractor status had been allowed
1: to be maintained. And the NFU's county advisor, Gemma Harvey, updates us on bird flu. And George Hosford brings us an update from down on the farm. Wildlife Rewilding Wild Woodbury. Dorset Wildlife Trust's project records more than 1,100 species in its first year. A year into the Wild Woodbury Rewilding Project at Beer Regis, and surveys have already recorded an uplift in the biodiversity and abundance of species onto the site. Over the last year the land has been allowed to regenerate naturally which has increased the biodiversity and abundance of wildlife. Staff and volunteers have recorded more than 1,100 species in this summer's surveys and eight red-list birds of conservation concern have been confirmed to be breeding at Wild Woodbury. Skylarks have increased from just two singing males last year to 18 counted this summer. No tree pipits or woodlark were recorded in 2021 but a breeding pair of each has been sighted, raising juveniles this year. Though there's no previous data for them, 28 yellowhammers have been counted this year. A rising number of juvenile birds have been spotted across the site too, including cuckoo, windchat and nightjar. A dry spring and the mass of emerging pollinators in the former arable fields helped to increase the invertebrate population. Butterfly transects tracked more than 200 meadow brown butterflies, as well as silver-washed fritillary and painted lady on the wing. The hot summer weather increased moth activity, attracting rarer species such as dingy mocha. Invertebrate specialists amassed more than 200 species of beetles, bugs and spiders, some of which have only a handful of records in Dorset. Large clumps of the nationally scarce lesser quaking grass appeared, offering an excellent food source for many finches, including goldfinch and linnet, and for yellowhammers. Narrow-leafed lungwort, red hemp nettle, and three species of orchid, including southern marsh orchid, are present on the site, as are small populations of cobalt crust fungi. The restoration of natural processes on the site should provide the right conditions for many species to return in greater numbers next year. With an ambitious aim of building an exemplar for sustainable land use to tackle the climate and ecological crises, the early years of the project were always going to be about letting nature take the lead, allowing the land to gently regenerate and giving nature more space. But of course, that doesn't mean simply abandoning the land. The Wild Woodbury team Partners and volunteers have spent much of the year conducting surveys and collecting data on ecology, soil, hydrology, species and water quality to provide baselines for monitoring and future analysis. Restoring a landscape and making space for nature on this scale takes time, but it's extraordinary to see all that's been achieved in just one year and to witness the abundance of wildlife species already calling wild Woodbury home. Discover more about Wild Woodbury at dorsetwildlifetrust.org.uk forward slash wild
0: Wildlife writer Jane Adams goes in search of mysterious hares in Dorset churches, which may have originated in Buddhist China. As I stared up at the ceiling inside St. Hubert's Church, Corf Mullen, three hares stared back at me. Each hare shared ears with its neighbour, And though the optical puzzle was fascinating itself, what did it mean? Placed alongside the Christian iconography, it felt weirdly out of place. Aren't they just big bunnies? A friend asked when I told her about the hares. Whilst it's true that they share some physical similarities, these elusive mammals are very different from rabbits. With long, black-tipped ears, a golden brown coat and those wonderful hind legs, they're nearly double the size, and about as similar to a rabbit, as a chihuahua is to a cocker spaniel. Hares are solitary creatures, particularly outside breeding season, feeding on fresh plant shoots at night, and hiding in a dip in the ground A form during the day. However, if discovered, they can run at up to 45 miles an hour, quick enough to outrun any native predator. Historically, we've had a confusing relationship with hares. Pagan and Christian beliefs link them not only to madness, famine and witchcraft, but also to fertility, good luck and longevity. A pagan springtime ritual celebration of hares may even have morphed into the Easter Bunny tradition. But nowadays they aren't as common as they once were. Most modern farms don't include the mosaic of crops, hedgerows, woodland and grazing that hares need to thrive. Along with an increase in pesticides, modern farm machinery, and a lack of legal protections, their numbers have decreased by 80% over the last 100 years. Hares breed from February through to September, producing three to four litters each year. The three hares' motif may be linked to their fertility. In the Middle Ages, it was thought that hares could reproduce without a mate, effectively virgin births. So the three hares could symbolise the Virgin Mary, or the Holy Trinity. This mysterious icon isn't restricted to one Dorset church. There are 17 churches in Devon with examples of a three-hair boss, with others found in Somerset and Cornwall. However, the earliest example of the motif is found in a Buddhist cave painting in China, dating from 581 to 618 CE. It's likely that it found its way to southern Britain via the Silk Road, a busy trading route in medieval times. So, although autumn and winter are excellent times to spot hares in the wild, this month try looking inside as well. Check the ceiling of your nearest medieval church, and if you find the mysterious three hares, I'd love to hear from you. And to learn more about brown hares, see the Hair Preservation Trust website, or contact Jane Adams via her website.
1: That's or oneword.com. Our hedgerows are overlooked climate heroes. They have inexplicably been left out of the Climate Change Action Plan, says Rupert Hardy, chairman of North Dorset CPRE. Last year, we wrote about the importance of hedgerows in offsetting climate change, see the BV, in August 21. We welcomed the government's 2019 Committee on Climate Change report, which called for a 40% extension of the UK's hedgerows, Sadly, the government did little to implement this in its 2021 action plan, which aimed to restore and enhance trees and woodland, but inexplicably left hedgerows out. CPRE therefore set out to promote this instead, proposing a target of 40% by 2050, with a campaign called hashtag 40 by 50. We commissioned the Organic Research Centre to provide an overview of the impact on nature, climate and the economy, and they suggested that for every £1 spent on hedgerows, a return of up to £4 can be expected from ecosystem and economic activities, such as biodiversity enhancement, carbon sequestration and woodchip production for biofuel. Planting hedgerows on arable land can boost yield by 10% and reduce artificial pest control by 30%. This is all rather ironic when you consider how many hundreds of miles of hedgerows were grubbed up in the post-war period to supposedly improve agricultural efficiency. Healthy hedgerows teem with life, and more than 10% of the UK's priority species are associated with hedgerows, including dormice and hedgehogs. There's huge potential to increase the carbon sequestration of hedgerows if they're allowed to become wider and taller. They also improve air quality and can reduce soil erosion and flooding. The CPRE has worked with Farmers Weekly to engage with farmers who want to be involved in our hedgerow management survey and has received no fewer than 1,100 responses, which we're analysing now. There'll be a parliamentary reception in December to launch the results of our farmer survey. Dorset CPRE has also been involved in a project to plant or restore more than 15 kilometres of hedge across the county, including the planting of over 50,000 trees. On the Hinton Admiral Estate straddling the Dorset-Hampshire border, this has involved the planting of 1.7 kilometres of new hedgerow and improving a further 1.3 kilometres of existing hedgerow to create a better habitat for wildlife. We are asking parliamentarians to sign up to become hedgerow heroes and to call on the Secretary of State to make a firm commitment to our 40% target. 55 have signed up to our campaign, but sadly they don't yet include any Dorset MPs. Our fellow campaigners, Dorset Climate Action Network, want to facilitate hedgerow restoration through their Great Big Dorset Hedge, or GBDH, survey project. Dorset CPRE members are helping with this too. John Calder, who has a farm in Charmouth, is helping to start that journey by designing the hedgerow surveys on the major trails that traverse our county, the Jubilee Trail, Star Valley Way and Brit Valley Way, among others. Hopefully, this will start a conversation in every parish they visit. The aim is to bring together volunteers and or contractors with landowners who want to have their hedgerows assessed, then restored or extended. In September, various volunteers, including those from the Dorset Wildlife Trust and Dorset CPRE, made their observations on nearly a mile of the Jubilee Trail to the west of the DWT's Kingcombe Centre in West Dorset. They looked at what species are in a hedge, found one English elm tree, and used the Adams Condition Code infographic sheet to determine the distinct stages of the life cycle of a hedgerow. Almost every hedge surveyed had an interesting story to tell, but they found a particularly wonderful old pathway in Mount Pleasant Lane. It was far too important historically and complex structurally to fit tidily into the streamlined hedgerow assessment process that's been developed for the GBDH project. It's worth so much more than that, so they added a sheet specially on it. Hopefully, data collected will be added later to a quantum GIS database, so everything can be recorded in one place and then used in mapping software such as Dorset Explorer. This will help to identify the hedges that have already been surveyed and sections that may need additional planting. If you'd like to join John and other volunteers on future surveys or find out more about the GBDH project, then please visit www.dorsetcan.org forward slash In 2000, our future CPRE president, Bill Bryson, wrote For well over a thousand years, hedgerows have been a defining attribute of rural England, the stitching that holds the fabric of the countryside together. From a distance, they give the landscape form and distinction. Up close, they give it life, filling fields and byways with birdsong and darting insects and the furtive rustles of rodents. Hedgerows don't merely enhance the countryside, they make it. Nowhere is this more true than in the pastoral landscape of North Dorset, with the added realization of the key role hedgerows can play in halting biodiversity decline and tackling climate change. Thomas Hardy's Vale of the Little Dairies, the Blackmoor Vale, is characterized by its irregular patchwork of small fields divided by ancient hedgerows. Some are Bronze Age or Neolithic in origin. There may have been boundaries then, but now we need them for other reasons. Please consider planting a new hedgerow as well as more trees. They are vital for our own survival.
0: Farming A Dorset farm has been fined £52,000 for causing unnecessary suffering to cows. A recent case of animal neglect on a Dorset farm has highlighted red flags with the red tractor accreditation systems, says Andrew Livingstone. Once again, farming has been cast under a dark shadow, this time a lot closer to home. Last month, a farmer from Kingston Russell near Dorchester was charged with offences relating to animal cruelty. In April last year, Trading Standards visited the farm with a vet from the Animal and Plant Health Agency and found an appalling sight, which has once again created negative press towards agriculture. Pens of calves had a mix of healthy, severely sick, and even dead calves. The pens, feeding equipment, and water troughs were all dirty and a badly injured and lame cow had been left with no visit from a vet for over three months. Out in the fields wasn't much better, according to the report. The visitors had to free a calf who had got caught in wire and had been left in a field and a large variety of animal bones and skulls were recovered from the land. The punishment for the mistreatment of all these animals? The farmer who ran the property was fined £52,000 for the neglect. In my personal opinion, they've got off lightly. I feel anyone found mistreating animals should be banned from keeping them for life and face prison time. I know for some farmers things can slowly build up until it's difficult to work out how to return to once-high welfare standards. But once you keep animals, it's a commitment that you cannot break. Partners and family need to know that their needs come after your cows, corn or pigs. So how had it got to this? Until April last year, the farm in question was certified with Red Tractor status. However, at that point, Trading Standards had been visiting for six years to ensure that changes were being made to the welfare of the animals. Did Red Tractor know of the previous poor animal welfare? The accreditation company should surely have been aware that the farm and its animals were in a poor state. Otherwise, what is their point? The farm is now banned from red tractor accreditation for two years, another stick with which to beat the farmer. But I would bet my house on the fact that the organisation has offered no support to the farmer in question since his ban. Of course, there is no excuse for animal abuse, but when standards slip on a farm, it usually correlates with troubles in the farm manager's mental and physical well-being. Despite my anger towards the farmer for what he did to those animals, I am still concerned for the individual. Agriculture is a lonely business with a high rate of suicide. This case suggests that red tractor don't appear to have systems in place to continuously care for accredited farmers or their animals. Instead, the Red Tractor accreditation seems to attempt to protect animals simply by increasing farm paperwork. I do believe that the individual in question should have been banned from keeping animals. But even if he had, it's got to be up to accreditation companies like Red Tractor to help farmers who have made mistakes to transition and learn, not just throw the book at them and then move on.
1: Alarmingly, bird flu is on the rise. New laws apply to backyard poultry keepers too, says NFU County Advisor Gemma Harvey. The 2021-22 winter season saw the worst outbreak of avian influenza, more commonly known as bird flu, that the UK has ever experienced, with more than 130 cases across the country. In previous years, cases have gradually subsided as spring approached, with none reported over the summer months, but that was not the case this year. Over the summer and on into the autumn, avian influenza persisted and a steady trickle of cases has continued. In recent weeks, the number of confirmed cases has significantly increased. Cases are not just confined to the commercial poultry sector. Around half of the confirmed cases in winter 21-22 were in backyard flocks. In response to the rising number of cases on Monday the 17th of October a nationwide avian influenza prevention zone came into force meaning that it's now a legal requirement for all bird keepers in Great Britain to follow strict biosecurity measures to protect their flocks from the threat of infection. Bird flu is spread by direct contact between birds and through contamination in the environment for example in bird droppings This means wild birds carrying the disease can infect domestic poultry, so the best way to reduce the risk of your poultry catching bird flu is to minimise the chance of them coming into contact with wild birds or their droppings by practising good biosecurity and safety measures. To help prevent the spread of the disease, it's important to review the biosecurity measures that are currently in place in your flock. The NFU has produced a helpful poster – to help you understand key areas to think about when it comes to protecting your birds. This, in turn, will protect not only your own flock, but other backyard farmers, and support British poultry. NFU Poultry Board Chairman James Mottershead says, The sheer persistence of AI, avian influenza, over the past year, coupled with soaring energy and feed costs, has put the whole British poultry sector under huge emotional and financial pressure. To receive the latest news and advice, should there be a bird flu outbreak, poultry keepers can sign up to the APHA Poultry Register. The NFU recommends that anyone with poultry or captive birds, no matter how many are in the flock, should register for free via the helpline on 0300 200 301. If you suspect avian influenza in your flock, please contact your vet immediately.
0: Battling Beetle, Following ELMS, and Farewell Florrie and Rocky. Farmer George Hosford discusses the latest news on ELMS, crosses his fingers on the new oilseed rape, and says goodbye to two old friends. Autumn sowing has proceeded at pace over the last three weeks. All is sown apart from two small fields of wheat, though the rain has made the last ten days a bit of an on-off affair. I am hesitant to mention the new oilseed rape crop, it needs a little longer to determine whether all of it will see the season out, though it may have turned the corner in the last 10 days in spite of a slug and flea beetle onslaught. Delayed sowing thanks to the August drought meant that the emergence coincided with the main beetle hatch, and although we have been trying to encourage predator insects with a more flowery habitat, the crop has still suffered. Perhaps, though, had we not established the extra habitat, the crop would have failed completely. We are in the first year of a new countryside stewardship arrangement, and, as well as the infield flowery strips, a significant part of it involves establishing 6 meter flower margins around the arable fields that don't already have them. Many of our fields have had them in place since we first entered HLS, that's the Higher Level Stewardship Scheme, in 2010, when we used purchased seed to establish them. This time we've used our own seed, harvested this summer from a field of downland reversion created in 2010 as a part of that original HLS, which itself had been sown with seed harvested from much older existing downland. It was, on that occasion, harvested by a seed specialist with a brush harvester and a tractor with very wide set wheels on very steep banks. We cut this year's seed with our own combine. It has now been analysed and 14 flower species have been identified, as well as a number of grasses. Fingers crossed for a good germination. The SFI, that's the Sustainable Farming Incentive, is the wide-ranging basic level of ELMS, That's DEFRA's Environmental Land Management Scheme, designed to attract many farmers into environmentally beneficial activity. The NFU is calling for it to be pushed ahead with vigour and to deliver 70% of farmers with 65% of the ELMS budget. But DEFRA have yet to acknowledge that this is what will be needed to achieve their aims. ELMS is intended to be a partial successor to the BPS, that's the Basic Payment Scheme a relic of the EU days which is being reduced to zero in annual stages over seven years. It's not pretended that ELMS will replace the BPS, but it's hoped that it will offer farmers public money for providing public goods in the shape of environmental enhancement. Supporting food production has been deemed to be less deserving of support with public money. There are two other strands to ELMS in addition to SFI. Local nature recovery is touted as the replacement for countryside stewardship and could perhaps be wound in and simply emerge as an evolved version of CS without the upheaval of a whole new scheme. Secondly, there's landscape recovery which needs to be handled with great care. It's likely to operate across a limited number of large areas where groups of landowners get together with a particular outcome in mind. Each of the 24 pilot projects recently announced will receive £500,000 to develop their projects. If this is likely to result in large areas taken out of food production, then the potential environmental gain will need to make a very strong case. The NFU is asking for a pause in broader ELMS development in order to take full account of the change situation across the world. The Ukraine war, the energy crisis, climate change and the ongoing aftermath of the Covid pandemic, not to mention the consequences of Brexit, all have affected food supply and flow around the world. If there is to be a pause in ELMS rollout in order to ensure that all these things reach fruition, then a delay in the reduction of BPS must also remain on the table. We now know what SFI can look like in reality for the two standards which are so far available, that's arable and grassland soils. The interface is straightforward and the application is easy to complete online, although the level of funding may not be high enough. Let us hope that more standards will appear very soon, but they must be fit for purpose before release. Draft versions of a hedgerow standard, for example, still need further work, a way needs to be found whereby SFI would fund farmers to plant new hedges in the advanced level. This could achieve much take-up and make a real difference. Hedges have the potential to provide huge environmental gain, but the key will be the funding. The income foregone plus costs model that DEFRA is currently hooked on will not cover all the work needed to be done to many existing hedges and if trying to get new ones planted will be utterly insufficient. Lastly, we bade goodbye to two old and faithful animal friends this year, both of whom were stars every time a school trip visited the farm. At the end of a visit, after looking at the growing crops, cows and calves, doing a woodland trail and checking out shiny giant machinery, we usually finish with a visit to the paddock, where the old pony and the tame sheep live. We always go armed with a bag of toast, which is handed out to the children and immediately snatched from them by the greedy, though surprisingly gentle, sheep and the pony, if she's quick enough. Florrie the pony was allegedly thirty eight this year. Sadly, twenty twenty two was as far as she could manage, and so too it was for Rocky, a weather lamb from twenty twelve. Junior family members had lambed his mother. He was a big fellow, and the birth proved too much for his mother, who did not survive. Once my twelve-year-old recovered from the shock of witnessing the ewes' demise, she gleefully brought him home to join that year's band of orphan lambs. From that moment, a life of luxury and uselessness was assured, though poor Rocky had his share of troubles. First, there was the time he got himself breached in the bushes, and had it not been for the eagle eye of Jane, he would have expired there. Then there were the many episodes of The Hole in His Back, What started with a small injury at shearing turned into a massive issue once the magpies spotted it and got dug in. First, we tried disinfectant spray and Stockholm tar, but that just trickled away in the sunshine. Then we tried a lady sheep's prolapse harness, the indignity of it, but he would shrug it off and the magpie was back in a trice. The stupid animal would just let it peck away. After that, we tried stitching a patch to his wool. Knitting it might have been better, but the wool was too short and the patch didn't survive trips into the bushes. Finally, Nicky hit on the genius idea of a glue gun, a wonderful tool for a multitude of situations. The glued-on patch lasted weeks, enabling the wound to make a full recovery. Last Sunday afternoon, a walker informed us that there was a suspiciously dead-looking animal lying on its side in the paddock. We'd only moved them that morning, and Rocky had trotted along happily, so the end had been thankfully swift, lying peacefully in the autumn sunshine. Between them, Florrie and Rocky must have met over 3,000 children. That's an awful lot of toast. Well, that's it for this edition, and for the November BV Magazine podcast. Join us again in December. Until then, it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett.
1: And goodbye from me, Jenny Davitt.